you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Esther chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can borrow uh, a Bible from the pew in front of you. And in that black ESV Bible, you'll find Esther chapter 4 on page 412. Now, the Bible is filled with what we think is sufficient for our holiness and our redemption. It is filled with words that will lead us to both of those ends. But it is also filled with many things that probably don't have direct application to us in this moment. For instance, if we were preaching through Proverbs or we were preaching through Ephesians, we might come to passages on parenting. Some of you don't have kids. Uh, Some of you will never have kids. Some of you have had kids and they are now fully grown and gone. Nevertheless, we would still teach on parenting because it's where we are in Scripture. Sometimes it is simply because of where we are, but sometimes it's because the Scripture gives us warnings about things that will come. As we are reading through and praying through Revelation on Wednesday nights, every other Wednesday night as we meet for our prayer meeting, we read through a book, uh, a chapter of the book of Revelation. We pray through that. We are hearing warnings about persecution. Not that we in America are under persecution, but we certainly hear that there are possibilities for persecution for us in the future and Obviously, not even a future possibility for people who are in other countries where they are facing persecution currently. It helps us to think through how we ought to respond, how we might respond to persecution, and also serve as a warning for its coming. Today, Esther is going to get some bad news. She has been isolated in the palace of the king, but now, now she will know. She will know of the disastrous edict that has gone out from both Ahasuerus and Haman to destroy all of the Jews. And now she will be warned that such things, while present outside the walls, even threaten her on the inside of those walls. This text hopefully will help us see that while such things are present for others, and while they might not be present as a reality for us, How will we respond? And it helps to teach us how we will respond to both persecution and suffering. Not only when we suffer it, but also when we hear about it from afar. Let us go and read the entirety of Esther chapter 4 this morning. Esther 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might take off a sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa after their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her 
to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it, against, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of our God. So what ought we do when we experience suffering or persecution? What ought we do when we hear brothers and sisters suffering or in persecution? The first thing, friends, should be to lament. We ought to lament. This was obviously Mordecai's first response. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put out sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and uttered cries. This was not just a practice for Jewish people. This was a common practice in the Middle East. We've talked about the fact that the Persian armies likely went to Greece and got destroyed there. This would have been a common occurrence in Persia at the time when they heard the reports of how their own army had been destroyed by the Greeks. This is not, as we might think, just an ostentatious public display of emotion. This is something that we likely wouldn't do, but this is a real depiction of their soul. It's a real depiction of how they're suffering. They lament, they weep, and they cry out. Is this our first response to suffering, to persecution when it comes? Perhaps not in expression, but in type. Do we lament well? I, I fear that a lot of the church, and possibly our church as well, we're not here just to point at what other churches do wrong, but to point at ourselves and to clean up our own house first. Are we a church that's more like Ahasuerus, or are we more like Mordecai? Ahasuerus fences off his palace so that no signs of grief or sadness can come close. Mordecai cannot enter the gate with mourning and sadness literally clothed on him. Ahasuerus doesn't want to be reminded of such things. Doesn't this sound like churches today? How many churches promote themselves as the church that can lament? We're not like other churches. They might be exciting and fun, but we know how to lament. No, rather, we must be inspiring. We must be uplifting. We must be encouraging. We must be people who only and ever rejoice. We must have services that are exciting that are applicational, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as if 
Friends, there is nothing to lament in this world. This entire chapter is framed around lamentation. Not only is it where Mordecai begins, but it's where they end. They are going to fast. And not a small fast. This isn't a light fast. It's not like, hey, listen, try not to eat some sugar today. Three days and nights, no food, no water. And we will do it as well. It is the first and it is the primary response we should have to matters of great persecution, even threatened persecution. And seeing as that our world is filled with animosity to the gospel, we have a lot to lament for. For governments that are set up by the will of God and by the authority of God who actively try to eliminate the worship of that God. They are present in our world. Persecution is a reminder of the very real presence of sin, of evil, of wickedness, and injustice in our world. It is a reminder that sin has consequences that go far beyond just your personal life. It is a reminder that while Jesus does indeed reign in heaven, there are still powers allied against him. Friends, when we hear of persecution, when we are threatened with persecution, let us lament. Secondly, we ought to learn we ought to learn. The question becomes, why do we lament? Why ought we sing songs of lament? Why ought we cry? Why ought we weep? Why ought we mourn? It is not primarily because it's a worthwhile human activity. It's not because it's therapeutic. It's not because it's a cultural thing. It is because we learn to do this from Scripture. This particular phase found at the end of verse 3. And they were fasting and weeping and lamenting. It's not found here alone in Scripture. As a matter of fact, it was found in a book written about 100 years, if not 200 years earlier, the prophet Joel. And Joel had gone before the people of Judah and the people of Israel and had told them of a great and disastrous day of the Lord that was coming to them. That it was sure to come to them, for their sins had come up to God. They were clear and obviously doomed. And yet in Joel 2, we read this. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? And leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, those words with fasting, with weeping, with lamenting are not found on the lips of Mordecai, but it's clear that the author of Esther thinks that they belong there, that this is why he's doing it, because you even get that who knows statement at the very end. Who knows whether he will relent and, and Joel, and who knows whether you've been put there, Esther, so that God could relinquish this great disaster that is coming upon us. And as much as Mordecai perhaps understands that this comes from the book of Joel, Esther doesn't want better. Her response is directly from the book of Joel. In verse 16, she says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, which rings from Joel 1 in verse 14. Consecrate a fast 
call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all of the inhabitants of the land. Mordecai and Esther have learned from Scripture how to respond. Do we? Have we learned appropriately from Scripture how to respond to the events that unfold before us? How to respond to the lostness of the world seen in persecution, to the the persecution of the body of Jesus Christ found in his church? In other places, not Michigan, there perhaps has been more persecution even during this time of COVID. And regardless of what you think of how the state of Michigan has handled things, it's clear that when it comes to religious exemptions, we've always had one. They have always applied that to us. Other states, that hasn't been the case. What happens when states have inappropriately, in some cases, taken away the right for Christians to gather together? What have those churches done? What would we do? My guess is probably not lament first. Many of them went directly to the law, and they sued. I don't think that that's unbiblical. I don't think that they're not understanding what they're supposed to do in terms of Scripture. But I think that lamenting is at least the first thing. And when they sued, is it wrong? I don't think so. I don't think it's wrong to try and prove your innocence and prove that you have a right to do something. But let's learn from Scripture. Let's look at where people actually go to a pagan law in order to make their case. We have a really good case of it in the entirety of the book of Acts. Paul is imprisoned, wrongly imprisoned, and he does indeed work the system. He appeals to Caesar. He claims that he's a Roman citizen, do certain rights. But why does he do it? The book of Acts makes it really clear. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, what is the promise that Christ makes to his church? You will receive power in Acts 1.8. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. And what happens at the end of the book of Acts? We don't know how things turn out for Paul. We don't know if he's eventually led into Caesar and found guilty or not. If we didn't have any other books, we would never know how Paul's life ended. Because Acts doesn't care about that. It's not whether he's innocent. It's not whether he's guilty. It's not whether he wins. It's about his witness. Paul continually appeals to the law, not the Old Testament law, to Roman law. He appeals to it so that he might witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. This is what Acts 28 says, the last verses of the book of Acts. Paul lived there, that is Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Do we learn from Scripture how to handle persecution? Do we learn from Scripture what persecution is there for? Friends, read your Bibles well not just so that you will be knowledgeable, but so that you will be prepared if that day comes that you might respond well. Lamenting is a rich tradition recorded for us in the Bible. We have a plethora of psalms, psalms given over to it. We even have an entire book given over to it. Let us learn well from Scripture and lament more often.
Third, we also ought to love. We also ought to love. Esther is told by her attendants what's going on with Mordecai. She immediately sends clothes to him. This has been taken in a couple of different ways. Many people think that she has sent clothes to him because Ahasuerus has had a sort of an unfortunate effect on her. It's a way of saying, Mordecai, you need to, you need to kind of cheer up, bub, you know, kind of, you know, put on some, some decent clothes and maybe life will turn around, you know. The sun will come out tomorrow. Most scholars who think this do this because they're pouring derision on Esther. They think that this is an immature view of what's going on, and they do assume that she is no better than Ahasuerus. I don't think that we should take it necessarily that way, though. Even if this is what she means by it, there's nothing wrong with looking at someone who is sad and in mourning and trying to get them to cheer up. Now, obviously, something else is wrong with Mordecai, and I don't think that this is actually what Esther is trying to do, but if you are suffering and someone comes to you and asks for you to cheer up and says, hey, you know, you know be encouraged and, and rejoice, always rejoice and quote scripture to you, I, I understand that that can be an incredibly difficult thing to hear because there will be times when you just don't need to hear that again. My friends, you also ought to remember that this might just be a sign of love for them, that far from them not wanting to be around people who are sad, maybe they just kind of want you to be happy. Accept it not as a coldness to your problems, but a desire for your joy. But I don't think that that's actually what she's doing. I rather think that what she is doing is sending clothes to Mordecai that Mordecai might come to her. He can't enter into the gate. She well knows this. She can't go down and talk to him. She can't even be close to him. They are always going to have to use an intermediary. Throughout the entirety of chapter 4, one of the problems is there's always somebody taking messages back and forth. My guess is that she wanted him to come closer to her. She wanted him to be nearer to her because she knew this isn't like Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't just weep and wail and, and lament for no reason. Something is desperately wrong. Notice what happens in verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She had no reason to be distressed. Nothing bad had occurred to her. And likely nothing bad was going to occur to her. But as long as Mordecai, whom she loved, suffered, so did she. We need to be the same. This is part of what it means to be knit together as a church. This is part of what it means for us to be part of a body together. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. In verse 24, he says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So just because you feel as though you are an insignificant part of the body, God has so made our bodies so that when even an insignificant part of your body is in pain, you still feel it. It's still painful. Paul says, if one member suffers, then all suffer together. If one member is honored, then all rejoice together. This is what it means to be in a body. When one of us hurts, we all hurt 
We ought to learn to sympathize and to grieve with one another, and all of this because we love one another. But fourthly, while we love one another, that means we have to listen to one another as well. You have to listen to one another. You've got to find out the reason for the pain. It's not enough for Esther simply to lament because he's lamenting, but she sends to find out what are you lamenting for? Listen, if you got a sudden piercing pain in your leg, what is your first response? It's to look down and find out what bit your leg. When you are in pain, you want to know why you're in pain. The same thing is going on with others who are in pain. Why are you in pain? Why are members of our body in pain? Find out. Why are they crying? Why is there lamenting? Find out. What is the problem with Christians in other parts of the world? Find out. We are quite a bit like Esther here, kind of separated from the rest of the world especially. We don't suffer persecution like the rest of the world does. We're not even threatened with persecution like the rest of the world does. She is completely divorced from everything that's going on in this situation. It's been decreed. Not only has it been decreed, but Susa, the whole city, is in an uproar about it. And when she finds out that Mordecai is mourning, she hasn't the faintest idea what's going on. News cannot possibly get her, get to her. She has no idea what's going on. She's oblivious. But she doesn't blow it off. She doesn't say, well, if, if I hadn't heard about it now, it can't be that big of a deal. Mordecai will get over it. When he gets over it, we'll talk. Mordecai just, you know, he's, he, he's got to work through some stuff. When he does, we'll be able to, to chat once more. You know, she seeks to find out what is wrong and to act accordingly. I, I, I have to tell you, like I, I hear from people in other churches. I've never heard this here, praise the Lord, but I hear from people in other churches who often talk about taking complaints to their leaders. And, and the response that they get is a quotation of scripture about mumbling and grumbling against leadership and blah, 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 and that's not who we're going to be and that's not who you should be and stuff like that. Listen, that might be right. It's very possible that those people that I've talked to and that I've heard from were literally just complainers and mumblers and grumblers, that they did not listen to the admonition of their elders. They didn't listen to the admonition of their leaders. They might be really akin to the Israelites who listened so intensely to their stomach that they refused to listen to Moses and to God speaking through Moses so that they would blaspheme God in Moses and complain about him and complain about the situation they're in. You might be, they might be, disobedient to their leaders in this way. But that also might not be the case. We must be people who listen to one another. We must be people who are willing to listen to the grumblings and the complainings of one another, to take those things seriously. Even when they seem like they're, they're small things. In the beginning of the book of Acts, the church is just just growing like dynamite. Everything's going well. Every report we've had, while there have been persecutions from the outside, inside, the mechanisms of the church have been working well. Even Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 is, is more of a bump on the road, even though obviously they were killed, so that's a pretty major bump. But at the same time, this seems to be working out. It seems to be isolated. By the time we get to Acts chapter 6, though, something happens, and that the internal mechanisms of the church are not going very well. 
We begin that chapter by saying, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews who were part of the church, arose against the Hebrews, that is the Hebrew or the Aramaic-speaking people of the church, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So food is being sent out to widows who need it. And the Hellenists say, listen, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but our widows consistently don't get their food. But the Hebrew widows are doing just fine. Now, everything's going like gangbusters. And the apostles could very well have said, listen, this is a minor detail. This is not important. You got to move on. Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. You guys sound like Israel in the desert. It's just envy because you want to be like the people who are closest to speaking the language of Jesus or whatever they might say. It's just murmuring and grumbling about the fallen nature of the world. Things like this happen. But they didn't do that. They listened to the complaints that people had. And they said, well, fixing the issue doesn't fall to us. But they didn't then just blow it off. They said, this is too small for us. Rather, they said, we ought to get a commission together and get this problem fixed. And not just any commission. It's basically a mundane administrative issue. They said, no, we've got to get seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We take it seriously. They saw this as a major issue, one that might hurt the church. And why did they see it this way? First and foremost, they saw it this way because they listened to the people who had a complaint. Often, we can't love other people because we can't listen to them or we simply refuse to listen to them. And when we refuse to listen to the complaints that people have, we keep ourselves from a very, very godly gift of being able to love them in their hurt, in their sufferings, in their needs. And again, this is a problem both locally and globally. We need to listen to one another here at Crossway. But we also need to listen to our brothers and sisters, whether in Atlanta or in Texas or in China or in Africa, about the complaints and the problems that they have too. I think it's likely true that if Esther doesn't find out about this, if Mordecai had died that day somehow, Esther would have never found out about that edict. She would have been locked away in her private little room sequestered from all of the trouble of the world. But when she finds out, it affects her. And it doesn't affect her in her own person. It affects her because it affects somebody close to her. It affects her because she loves Mordecai. It affects her because she loves her people and she's willing to place her life on the line for them. None of that is possible without actually listening to the problem. So friends, listen to your brothers and sisters whether it's within the walls of this church or those who love Christ elsewhere, listen to them. And finally, number five, we must lead. We must lead. Many people have different opinions as to who the real hero of the book of Esther is. Now, those of you who miss Sunday school want to say, well, the, the hero of the book of Esther is God. Congratulations, gold star. But what about the two people who are here? And what I was hoping to do at the beginning of when I was kind of working through this was to have sort of an informal poll, but then I realized that getting Baptists to raise their hands during worship is probably a tall order. So we'll, uh, we'll just go and say there's probably a 50-50 split between people who think that Mordecai is the hero of the book of Esther and 
Esther is the hero of the book of Esther. Now, Esther's got a really good claim. After all, her name appears at the top of every page because the book is named after her. So some bloke along the way thought that her name belonged up there, which means she's got at least some claim to being the hero. She risks her life. She is the one who devises the plan to save the Jews that will be coming up in the next several chapters. But Mordecai has a really good claim as well. After all, he's the ancestor of Saul, which makes him kind of the center of this redemption of the house of Saul happening within Israel. He is the protector of Esther. He is the one that pushes her to act. And of all the people in the book of Esther, he has what is closest to a grand statement of faith here in verse 14. We've, we've talked about how the author of Esther wants to keep the name of God and the title God out of this book. But if there is ever a place where it's so close to the surface, it's almost bubbling up where you expect to have it, it's in verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. You can almost hear it in the background. He means God. God will deliver them. God will deliver us, Esther. So he has a really, really good claim, and certainly this is the height of Mordecai's presence in the book of Esther. So I have good news. I have an answer for you about who the hero is of the book of Esther, and this is going to be undoubted by all of you by the time we're done here today. It is actually Esther. It isn't Mordecai. I have a problem with verse 14 and that it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know what Mordecai is saying. Now, I know that he is saying, if you keep silent at this time, that's the first bit. The second bit is, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That's the second bit. The third bit, but you and your father's house will perish. I don't get that. I don't know what he means by that. Like, okay, I literally understand what he means by that. I don't know what he's implying by that. Does he mean that the king is going to turn on you? Who's going to come after Esther? If she keeps silent and the Jews are delivered, if the Jews are delivered, who's coming after Esther? Who's going to try and kill her? She's the queen. It doesn't read like prophecy. Frankly, it reads like a threat. He's basically saying, if, in a certain way of reading it, if you don't do what I want, Esther, if you don't, if you don't do what I want there's a good chance that you might find yourself on the wrong side of things. And I don't think he's saying that, but I don't know what he's actually saying. Now, uh, a scholar named Frederick Bush says, actually, the problem isn't in that third bit of verse 14. The problem is actually in the second bit of verse 14, which is read as a pure statement. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And he says, that actually shouldn't be read as a statement. It should be read as a rhetorical question that expects a negative answer. In other words, what Mordecai is saying, if you keep silent at this time, will relief and deliverance rise for the Jews from another place? No. And you and your father's house will perish. It's coming for you. Don't think that because you're behind the walls that that's going to keep the mob from coming to get you. Now that at least makes sense. I don't know that it's right. But it did make me rethink Mordecai's role in all of this. And in rethinking Mordecai's role, 
I began to doubt his heroism. In the beginning of these chapters, in chapter 1, 2, and 3, he's done basically three things. One, he has reported the assassination attempt, which, while it will prove to be kind of a fascinating plot twist in the end, doesn't actually help the solution that's going to be happening. The other two things are almost directly related to the whole problem that the Jews find themselves in. First, he tells Esther to not tell anyone who her people or her kindred is. Now, the question that comes before us is, if Haman knew that Esther was Jewish, would he ever have the guts to even fake like he was going to kill all of the Jews? Because there's no way that news is not getting back to the king. Would he have ever opened his mouth? We are told two times Esther didn't do this, not just because Esther didn't do it, but because Mordecai told her not to. Which makes what we're reading now all the more worse because now Mordecai is saying, if you don't, we all die. If you refuse to speak up about your people now, we all die, and that includes you. The second thing that he has done has been to withhold honor and homage from Haman, which is the direct cause of everything that's happening now. And we know that it's the direct cause, and we know Mordecai knows it's the direct cause. Not only does Mordecai have a whole bunch of background information, he knows how much Haman has promised to pay, even though that's not in the official decree. He also says this in verse 7, Mordecai told him all that happened to him. That is, this edict happened to me. This edict is actually about me because I refuse to pay homage and honor to Haman. Now, well before you go to Esther and ask her to put her life on the line, there is a real easy solution for you to at least try. And you might not like it. It might not suit you. It might be countercultural, but here's, here's an attempt. Haman, my name's Mordecai. I think you're a jerk. And what's more than that, your family and your people have proven themselves to be reckless and faithless infidels that have always sought the destruction of my people. You and I both well know our family histories. And my God has promised to destroy your people from off the face of the earth. And may he do it yet. But I was wrong to refuse the command of the king. I was wrong to not pay honor and homage to you. And I will allow you, not only will I pay that honor and homage, but I will allow you to shame me as long as you let my people go free. That is, I think, the most obvious solution because that's the whole point of what Haman is incredibly incensed by. And if you're a proud man, The way to answer a proud man, to get him to quell his pride, is to stroke his pride. Not only does Mordecai not do that, he does the exact opposite of that. The bear is already angry at him, and then he goes and he pokes him again. In chapter 5, verse 9, when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate. So now Mordecai's done mourning. He's back in the king's gate. He's got his, his normal royal dress on. When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. 
Now, that might be an incredibly far thing for Mordecai to do. It might be an incredible thing for Mordecai to do, to take on shame in in an honor and shame culture, which is something that's a little far away from us. And I don't think we know the depth that would have to happen in Mordecai's humiliation here. But nevertheless, he refuses to take on shame for the people. And the reason why, one of the great reasons why he is not the hero here is because he does not exist in the shadow of Christ. He's not the forerunner here. He's not the one who lives a life like Christ does. He could have taken on shame for the people. Mordecai could have easily taken on shame, even though he deserved honor from the king. And Haman got it. He could have taken shame instead while he deserved honor in order to spare his people death, which is precisely what Jesus does. He takes on shame that was not his. While due honor from people, he receives shame from them so that we don't have to. He inserts himself where we belong to spare us. But Mordecai doesn't do that. But there is one who does. Esther looks like the shadow of Christ. She's a royal figure who, by the way, is quite separate from all of the suffering that's going on. That even if Haman wanted to come after her, and even if Mordecai thinks that she's going to suffer the same fate as her people, it really looks unlikely that she's going to. She's a royal figure who is outside of this suffering, who is outside of this persecuting who will never have to pay the price that her other people would. Instead, she inserts herself directly into the problem, and she takes on the problem, perhaps even laying down her life for what is good and right and true. And she says, if I perish, I perish. Sounds an awful lot like one who places his life in the hands of one who judges justly. Christ is indeed the royal son who, in a sense, both literally and figuratively, was separated from the evil and the sin of this world and the penalty of it. Yet even while he was separated from it, he put himself in the middle of it, placing his own body between God and us, taking on himself the penalty of our sin. Indeed, his death pays for our sin that we might be rescued from a king's decree that if you do these things, you will surely die. Esther is the one who foreshadows Christ, not Mordecai. You can even see this in in the actions that they take. In the first three chapters, we've talked about how Esther is really passive. She does very little of anything. She wins favor before the king, but that seems little more, and and before the the leader of the um, concubines, but that seems little more than simply allowing them to do what they want to do. Everything she's taken from her family, she is taken to the king. She, she's passive in everything she does. Meanwhile, Mordecai is active. The more Mordecai acts, the worse things get for the Jews. But in chapter 4, all that changes. Mordecai is going to start to be very, very passive. He will have a hand in writing the edict that will go out that will reverse everything. But other than that, things happen to Mordecai. But Esther starts to act. Previously, 
Esther was only commanded to do things. And in one fail swoop, when she decides this is what needs to happen, now she's starting to command. You go, you call a fast. And it's interesting, the language verse 17 uses, Mordecai then went away and did everything as, as Esther asked him, as Esther said to him. It's really clear, as Esther commanded him. Now, he's listening to her. And it is only when she starts to be active that the hope for the Jews begins to tick up. This is as it should be. We read this and we think that Mordecai, many of us read this, many scholars read this and think that Mordecai should be the hero. I think probably for little other reason than men are always the heroes in stories. And especially in biblical stories. But he is showing himself to be like Saul. He's showing himself to, to be like Saul and we are showing ourselves to be like like Israel. Saul was elected king because he was big, strong, and tough. He looked like all the other kings. And Mordecai is our hero because he looks like all the other heroes. But that is precisely the point. It is precisely the point that Esther is chosen because she is a woman, but not in the way that feminists want. She's not chosen because God wants to show how powerful a woman could be. She's not chosen because God wants to show off what a woman can do. She is chosen because God wants to show off what he can do, and so he picks the weakest one he can find. It is because she has no power that God chooses to work through her, and that in and of itself upends even our expectations of what God is doing in this story. In her actions, Esther shows us how to lead like Christ. She doesn't do it by simple assertion. She doesn't do it by declaring her own power. She doesn't do it simply by uttering commands. Yes, she utters commands, but those commands are not self-serving. As Pastor Richard read from Mark today, the lords of the Gentiles, the, the rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over you, but you are not to be like that. She issues commands so that she might have favor in what she does. She issues commands so that her service to the people of Israel, to the Jews, might be fruitful. She utters commands and leads so that she might lay down her own life if need be. And that is leadership. How many parts of Christian ethics and Christian living can be boiled down to one passage in the book of Philippians? Adopt, Paul says, the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Jesus says, to give his life as a ransom for many. When times of tribulation and persecution come, those are the leaders to look to. Not those who issue commands from on high, but those who are willing to serve with their lives. Yeah, times of tribulation may come, and they may not. But friends, we have to learn how to lament, listen, and love like Scripture teaches, and to lead 
as Christ himself has exemplified for us. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the grace of our Lord. We thank you for his sacrifice on our sinful behalf, taking on the shame that was not his, that he might give to us life that was not ours. Let that sacrifice be our guiding principle, shedding light on our path and giving us hope for the future. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for his glory and for our good. In his name, amen.